Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. The United Nations Environment Program, UNEP, turns 50 years old this year. And in early June, world leaders are gathering in the city where UNEP was born to commemorate this milestone in a conference known as Stockholm Plus 50. My guest today, Maria Ivanova, wrote the book on the absolutely fascinating history of the United Nations Environment Program. She is a professor of global governance at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and author of the book, The Untold Story of the World's Leading Environmental Institution, UNEP at 50. We kick off discussing the historical context in which UNEP was born before having a broader conversation about some of the key decisions and key moments from the 50-year history of the UN's first global environmental body. This is probably the, I think, third time I've had Maria Ivanova on the podcast. She is an expert on global governance issues. I always love learning from her, and I do strongly recommend her book, not only for students of global environmental issues, but also for students of the United Nations and really anyone who wants to better understand how international institutions and global governance more broadly works. All right, now here is my conversation with Professor Maria Ivanova. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Often now, when we talk about environmental governance, anything environmental... What do we see on the cover of a book, on a web page? We see the globe, right? We see the planet. And in 1968, we saw that picture for the first time, Earthrise, when the astronauts from Apollo took the picture of the Earth rising over the moon. And that picture from 1968 has since defined the inextricable connectedness on our small planet. And this is indeed what raised awareness around the world in the late 1960s and what motivated the environmental movement of the 1970s. So the Stockholm Conference, the main report and the the slogan, the motto for the conference was only one earth. And it was inspired by that uh, picture, the most important photograph of our time, Earthrise. It's incredible to me that a picture taken in 1968 could lead to, you know, a major international conference premised on a budding environmental movement just four years later. (laughs) Well, it wasn't just the picture, but it really 
sensitize people to how small our planet was and to how singular it was. Only one Earth, right? Only one planet uh, was the was the, the slogan of, uh, of the conference. But indeed, the awareness came earlier in the 1960s. 1962 was another awareness-raising event, and it was a book. Maybe it's surprising, right? We have a, a photograph and a book. Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, was the one um, intellectual contribution that led to public outcry in the United States. And that led to the first Earth Day in 1970, in April of 1970, when 10% of the population of the United States spilled into the streets in protest and demanded environmental action. That, in turn, led to the creation of a whole suite of institutions in the United States, the Environmental Protection Agency, the National Environmental Protection Act, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the Endangered Species Act. And that determined the leadership of the United States. So there was a whole series of events that led to a public outcry in the late 1960s, early 1970s, and indeed to the conference. Because the government of Sweden proposed the convening of a conference on environment rather than on the peaceful use of nuclear uh, energy in 1968. And it does take four years to convene a conference in the United Nations. And so presumably other countries in the world you know, were developing, I don't know if you would call them environmental ministries, but you know, the rough equivalents of like the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. And presumably one purpose of a conference like this is to create mechanisms for these ministries or agencies in national governments to kind of like talk to each other. Well, I'll have to correct you on that, Mark. Please. You wrote the book, literally. <laughs> no, countries did not develop environmental ministries before the conference. They did so after the conference. And they did so as a result of what I call the Anchor Institution for the Global Environment, the UN Environment Programme that helped countries create these ministries. It was the United States that had the Environmental Protection Agency. It was Sweden that had an environmental ministry, but not many more countries. Fascinating. So it was the opposite of what I said, essentially, that with the, the advent <laughs> of the United Nations Environmental Program gave rise to uh, the idea that government should have like ministries devoted to environmental issues. Correct. So what's the origin story of, of UNEP? How did it come to life? So UNEP came to life, again, in this spectrum of environmental awareness. So as countries, citizens understood the interconnectedness of the environmental issues with that Earthrise image, with the pollution that we were seeing around the world, um, mostly across developed countries, there was a need, a clear understanding that collective problems required collective action. And there were a number of individuals in the United States, in Sweden, um, 
across other countries around the world that actually saw not only the need for these collective institutions or these institutions for collective actions, for collective action, but also how they could be put in place and then the need for an institution for collective action at the global level. And so UNEP came about because some people in the United States, Ambassador John McDonald, for example, who was in the U.S. State Department, saw the need for an international institution. There was a gap. He had created other institutions. He had created the UN Population Fund, UN Volunteers, and he articulated the need for an international institution uh, for environment. And he developed the rationale for it and the support for it in the U.S. government. So again, surprisingly, and counter to, to conventional wisdom, the United States government at the time in the 1970s was a leader in the imagining of a new international institution for the environment. So it was indeed the United States and Sweden that led the idea for the creation of such an institution. Many developed countries in Europe, the UK, for example, or France, were not only not supportive, they were actually quite opposed to the idea of a new international environmental institution. It goes quite counter to what we, the kind of narratives that we have developed over time. I think maybe another interesting thing that's counterintuitive or counter to like the conventional narrative that, you know, I understand now, which is that, you know, in this period, more broadly speaking across the UN system, there's just like deep paralysis uh, because of the Cold War. Mm -hmm. Yet here you have the advent of a new United Nations institution in like the height of the Cold War. Uh, What were there like important Cold War dynamics informing the creation of UNEP? Absolutely. There were very important Cold War dynamics in the convening of the Stockholm Conference. So in uh, these early 1970s, we had uh, two Germanys, right? East Germany and West Germany. And uh, East Germany was not allowed to participate in the conference. This was Cold War dynamics because East Germany was not formally a member of uh, the United Nations. And so in solidarity, the Soviet Union and all of the Eastern Bloc countries boycotted the conference. They did not attend. And so you have the entire Eastern Bloc absent from the Stockholm conference. However, because of the wit, the commitment, and the entrepreneurial spirit of the Secretary General of the conference, Morris Strong, these countries were kept uh, engaged through direct channels, direct diplomatic channels. So Morris Strong talked to the Russian ambassador uh, regularly, and indeed, environment became the space, the platform, where a lot of collaboration between East and West, uh, between North and South, happened after the Cold War. But during the Stockholm Conference itself, this was Cold War dynamics at their height. 
And I'm glad you mentioned Maurice Strong because he's like a fascinating figure. He's a Canadian who earned like a fortune in the fossil fuels industry, if I'm not mistaken, but then became like a leading figure in the international environmental movement. I I sort of know of his work mostly through his association with Kofi Annan. Uh, They were sort of tight compatriots uh, back at the time, but it's just fascinating to me to think that someone with that background uh, could become this international environmental leader. You're absolutely right. Uh, My entire work on global environmental governance is at the juncture of uh, individuals and institutions. And uh, while I am a, a scholar of institutions, I focus a lot on the role of individuals in these institutions. And so I have studied Maurice Strong. I have interviewed Maurice Strong and uh, convened all of UNEP's executive directors in 2009 for the first and now only time. Um, All five at the time UNEP executive directors came together in the same room to discuss the history of UNEP, the vision for its future, and uh, share their insights with a group of uh, people who had led and created institutions, but also a group of young people from around the world who were emerging leaders. Now, uh, over 10 years later, they have all emerged and have become powerful leaders in their own right. But uh, Maurice Strong was there. Uh, Mustafa Toba, who is another very important leader of, uh, of UNEP, uh, Liz, Liz Dowdswell, um, Klaus Topfer, um, and uh, of course, Achim Steiner. And it's just fascinating to me that, you know, in today's context, it would be unheard of uh, to have someone who had that background in like the oil and gas industry become like an environmental leader and the leader of, of a UN agency's dedicated to, you know, environmental progress. Well, Maurice Strong is a, is a complex figure. He, he actually comes from a, from a very modest background. He did not even finish high school. And he was, uh, so his engagement with the oil industry was because of uh, where he was in Canada at the time. And he traveled up north. And these were the, these were the explorers at, at the, the time is what type of resources are there. And so indeed, he, he, with his uh, smarts and his wit, he, he managed to work for, for companies. But he was also the uh, director, the, the head of the Canadian uh, Development Agency, CEDA. Mm-hmm. And this is what he was right before he became um, the Secretary General of the Stockholm Conference. But he's also someone who was very committed to the United Nations. He had always wanted to work at the United Nations, and he started as a security guard at the United Nations when he was very young. And he understood that he this would not be the way to go to the top. And so he exited, made a fortune, worked with companies, but he always preserved that interest in uh, global collective action and in the environment. So I want to ask you about key accomplishments of UNEP over the last 50 years. But before we get there, I have to imagine that there is an interesting story to tell about how UNEP became the first United Nations 
uh, major office to be located in Africa. Its headquarters is in Nairobi. How did that come about? That's also a counterintuitive story. Uh, there, in some of the narratives about uh, how that comes about, uh, people people would say, or even scholars write, that uh, it was a very purposeful decision to put UNEP out of sight, out of mind. We've created the first environmental uh, institution in the United Nations. Governments were afraid that it will be too powerful. Therefore, um, they almost conspired to put it away in uh, in Nairobi, where it, it would be indeed out of sight, out of mind. That's not the story. That's not what happened. And I uncovered the story by going into the archives of the UN and uh, reading through the, the transcripts of the deliberations at, uh, at the time. And what, what happened was a very genuine debate about uh, where a new international institution's um, headquarters would be located. And it was about representation. Until then, the United Nations uh, agencies were all located in the global north. And there was a very valid argument made by Kenya very forcefully in the UN General Assembly that it was time for fairness, for equity in the location of UN headquarters around the world. And uh, it, the decision to, to locate uh, the headquarters of UNEP in, uh, in Nairobi came about in a, in a competition. There were comp- competitive bids from uh, 10 countries. Kenya was, uh, was one of them. And uh, ultimately, it was the result of a vote in the UN uh, General Assembly, in a, in a committee in the UN General Assembly. And uh, at the time, again, think of this is Cold War, but it's also post-colonial reality. And a lot of UN member states are col- previous colonies that had just gained nationhood and uh, developing countries outnumbered developed countries and made a very powerful argument for locating this new agency in, in Nairobi. And uh, as a result of a vote, most countries voted, uh, voted yes. So all developing countries voted uh, yes. Most Developed countries actually abstained, and uh, the final result was a um, decision to locate the first um, UN env- the headquarters of the first UN environmental institution in the global south in Kenya. The decision to locate UNEP's headquarters in in Nairobi has had significant impact because. It enabled developing countries to be part of this environmental agenda. But it also colored what the UNEP itself as an institution was responsive to and what it was able to do. Um, UNEP had to become more responsive to the problems that it saw uh, on, on the ground and it became an advocate for the interests of, uh, of developing countries. And this is why I call UNEP the anchor institution for the global environment, because anchor institutions are institutions that cannot move. They, they anchor the debate, both physically, 
but also um, conceptually. And UNEP has anchored the, the debates on global environmental governance in the global south, and it has a responsibility to the community within which it is it is located to be responsive and to actually contribute to those communities in a in a substantive in a in a productive way. So looking back over the last 50 years of UNEP, what would you consider to be its most important or significant contributions to environmental causes? So we have to think about the mandate of the institution and the expectations from the institution. And those are not necessarily the same things. So UNEP's mandate was to be the in is to be the environmental conscience of the world, is to raise awareness, to uh, bring the environmental dimensions to the UN system and to bring together the environmental institutions or the institutions that work on environment in the UN system. The expectations from UNEP are often that it would resolve environmental problems but it does not have the capacity, does not have the instrument, the tools to resolve global collective action problems on on its own. So therefore, I would characterize UNEP's accomplishments in, uh, in in three areas. One, it did raise awareness about environmental issues around the world, and it continues to do so. Two, it created, it catalyzed the creation of institutions for environmental protection around the world. Those environmental ministries that we talked about, it was UNEP that was the catalyst, the creator of these institutions. And third, it did contribute to collective action on global problems, on global environmental problems. And indeed, through that collective action, from science, from policy, from companies, from citizens, it contributed to the resolution of some critical global environmental problems. And here, ozone depletion is uh, exhibit one. If it were not for UNEP, if it were not for, indeed, its executive director at the time, Mustafa Toba, I doubt that we would have come to the resolution of the depletion of the ozone layer in the manner in which uh, in which we did. Now, the ozone hole is healing, and uh, it is the one global problem that we can say we have almost resolved. And you're referring to the uh, 1987 Montreal Protocol, uh, which is, I think, widely considered the most impactful or successful global environmental treaty. And as you said, you know, it was convened under UN auspices. And I think, like the last time you and I spoke for the podcast, was uh, a podcast episode focused on the success of uh, the Montreal Protocol in closing the hole in the ozone layer. But you you cite a direct link between the advent of UNEP and the a successful uh, healing of the ozone. Indeed, indeed. And this mark is also an example of the importance of both individuals and institutions in exercising leadership. To what extent is UNEP um, responsible for or a contributor to the advent of the UNF 
IPCC, the, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change that is the kind of driving force behind international negotiations on climate change. To a great extent, UNEP and the World Meteorological Organization, WMO, were the co-creators of the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, whose reports we now await eagerly and uh, they get more and more dire by by the year, right? Um, but this scientific assessment that uh, this panel um, was created to, to deliver was absolutely critical. And this is what, what UNEP did. It mobilized the science. That was its mandate. And it delivered on it on its mandate in an outstanding manner. And so after that science came to, to the fore, uh, scientists called on governments to create the necessary institutions. And uh, the institution that was deemed necessary was a new convention, a new instrument. And that was the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. And uh, it, was, uh, it was adopted in 1992. Uh, during the Rio conference, the Earth Summit, which was celebrated, which was convened on the 20th anniversary of the Stockholm conference. So we are speaking uh, you know, during a year of commemoration of Stockholm Plus 50. Um, as world leaders and as delegates and academics and geo leaders are convening in Stockholm, in person, presumably, for uh, this commemoration. What should us, those of us who are not in Stockholm, expect out of Stockholm plus 50? Is this going to be just like a celebration of accomplishments of years past, or is there some sort of forward-looking agenda that will be articulated or has been articulated around this conference? So Stockholm Plus 50 is going to be a different event. It is formally not uh, considered now a conference. So it was the Stockholm Conference on the Human Environment, the Rio Earth Summit, which was also a conference. Um, in Stockholm now, we will only have two days, and uh, they are deemed or they are termed to be an international meeting. So it is a commemoration. It is a celebration of the anniversary and a wake-up call, an urge to action to governments, but also to citizens, to companies, um, to campuses, universities around the world, to do things uh, that matter, to deliver on the commitments that were made in Stockholm, in Rio, and in the conferences since. But there will not be any formal negotiations. I think this is a celebration, but it's also a, a wake-up call. So I guess building off that idea of, of like this being a, a wake-up call, you know, having studied so carefully the history of UNEP, what role might UNEP play today to perhaps more progressively fulfill against its mandate? So what can UNEP do? What can UNEP do as the small institution within the United Nations 
with a big mandate to address world environmental issues, whether it's through awareness or through the raising, through the creation of institutions or through direct direct action. It's, it is indeed the question that not only is UNEP asking itself, but others are asking of, of UNEP. And I would answer this, that UNEP must be and must be seen as the resource that makes other agencies more effective. UNEP has to be seen as the connector, the catalyst, the collaborator. That is where its comparative advantage lies. UNEP will not be able to resolve environmental problems by itself. It would not be able to give the resources to uh, every place where they're necessary. However, UNEP is the convener. It holds a tremendous power to articulate where the problems are, but to also bring together thinkers and doers uh, and to articulate a new way of moving forward and make the connections, make the connections among countries, among companies, among citizens, and I would really emphasize among universities. This is the one area where I will continue to tell UNEP, let's work more on bringing the young people through universities into a more coherent and kind of more purposeful collective trajectory. Uh, well, Maria, thank you so much for your time. And I will post a link to your book in the show notes of this episode. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Maria Ivanova. That was great. And uh, I do want to plug that. I think the last time that I spoke with Maria Ivanova for the podcast was part of a special episode I did on the history of the Montreal Protocol. This, of course, was the landmark United Nations Treaty that resulted in the closing of the hole in the ozone layer. And I did this episode as part of a special series in which I partnered with the United Nations Foundation around success stories of multilateral cooperation. So do check out that episode in the archives. All right, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye. Bye.